This is the weekly sermon from Church of the Holy Trinity, a Reformed Episcopal parish of the Anglican Church in North America in Houston, Texas. Please join us on Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and 5 o'clock p.m. for Holy Communion, and visit us on the web at holytrinityrec.org. Enjoy the sermon. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. On every side. This line in the first verse of our lesson today in 1 Samuel speaks to what King Saul faced every day of his reign in Israel. In many ways, our whole existence as Christians is much the same in terms of of the daily fight against the world, the flesh, and the devil. We are labeled throughout the Bible, throughout the New Testament, as not of this world, as sojourners, as the soldiers of Christ. This means our role as Christians is not an easy one, but it is a role where we preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, where we continue to establish his church throughout the world, in the lives we are given. This morning, let us look to our lesson in 1 Samuel for a better understanding of our continuing role as Christ's people to fight the good fight, preaching the gospel to all nations. The last part of chapter 14 speaks of Saul facing the enemies of God all around, staying in a constant state of war for his entire reign. 40 years. For us in our nation today, going on now almost 18 years of constant war against terror since 9-11, we have a little bit of a sense of what a constant warfare means to a degree. The mention of Saul's family in this last part of chapter 14 is meant to convey that it was not just King Saul that fought that led Israel. It was his entire family that was devoted to fight for the Lord. And the same is true for us as Christians. It is not just the individual Christian. It is the entire family, the entire Christian family that is meant to wage spiritual warfare against the world, the flesh, and the devil, and preaching the gospel. But there is one caveat to the warfare that we experience today in terms of physical warfare in our nation. We do not face the same threats Israel faced so long ago. We do not face the constant threat and fear that the next crop that we work so hard to develop and grow and foster might be stolen by surrounding armies in the harvest. In such times... The people of Israel were threatened, not just the men, but the women, the children, the infants. If they could not feed their families because the Amalekites or some other tribe took their food, they would be weakened and unable to have strength to fight off the next army that sought to take what was left. This is what Israel constantly faced since the time of Joshua, hundreds of years before Saul. God chose Saul as his king to lead Israel against all these enemies, all at once, constantly fighting in his 40 years 
as king to bring peace to the land that had not been there for hundreds of years. The nations around and among Israel sought her destruction spiritually through leading them from God and physically through war, through murder, through theft, through slavery and starvation. This is what the nation of Israel faced from her enemies all around. The only way out was what God had been commanding them since the time of Moses in terms of what they were to do to the inhabitants of the land, the promised land, as they entered. In our next section, verses 1 through 3, we encounter a rather hard-to-deal-with passage in verse 3. We come across something that the Lord only reserved for the unrepentant pagans of the promised land. Samuel told Saul, Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Initially, reactions of all sorts hit us from this particular verse through the mind and heart set of a 21st century Western culture. First, we must realize that this command is from God and God alone and was never to be initiated without his direct commandment. We also go too far in our own day when advocating for such types of warfare because such warfare was only commanded by God for a specific purpose, season, and place. The language of devoting to destruction has the following connotation as it is seen throughout the Old Testament. Surrendering something to God meant devoting it either to the service of God or putting it under a ban for utter destruction. To our sensibilities in our day, such language is rather hard to fathom. But for our purposes here, it is important we examine the passage that serves as the foundation, if you will, to all passages that involve warfare that God commanded his people to wage in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy chapter 20. Now, as a caveat here, sometimes it happens in my sermon prep and prayers throughout the week and preparing a sermon. I initially send the outline that's in your bulletins this morning to Johnny early in the week. And sometimes when the sermon's actually composed, things change. So for this morning, this will actually be our last point. We will carry on with the last part of our reading today from verse 4 on next week. In reading Deuteronomy chapter 20, five key areas are seen in this chapter regarding how God commanded his people to conduct warfare. We can best remember this with the following mnemonic device, Frio, not as the Frio River, but F-R-E-W, Frio. If you think about it in this passage from Deuteronomy 20, F speaks to the point that God told the Hebrews to fear not those that they were told to fight when they entered the promised land. Deuteronomy chapter 20 verse 1 states, You shall not be afraid of them, for the Lord your God is with you. Many times in Israel's history, the people sinned 
simply because they were afraid. Remember when the 12 spies were sent into the promised land, they came back and only two of them wanted to carry out God's commandment and the other 10 were fearful of the land and the people in the land and they sinned by disobeying. God told them repeatedly that he, as their warrior, would prevail for them. Now the R in our pneumonic device speaks of the point of a reminder, something that the priests of God were called to do for the army of Israel before they were to go to war. The priests were to remind the people that they were not to fear, but to trust God. As Deuteronomy 20 instructs the priests to say to the people, Hear, O Israel, today, let not your heart faint. Do not fear or panic or be in dread of them. For God goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to give you the victory. Fearing not their enemies was important enough to spend a great deal of time in this particular passage to deal with it. And as we read today in our passage in 1 John, we also read that in God's love, indeed, we have no fear. We have nothing to fear if we are in Jesus Christ. With God first loving us, he is our warrior. He defeats our enemies, no matter what we face. These first two areas of concern regarding the manner that Israel was to conduct warfare have great applications, I believe, to the spiritual warfare we wage today as Christians. See, fear is an insidious tool of the enemy, whether in the time of the Old Testament to attempt to cause Israel to disobey God through not fighting, or on our own day to disobey God by not confronting the enemies of Jesus Christ with the spiritual weapons that he has given us in his word. Our charge is the same today, to fear not and to rely on the ministers of God's word to remind us to fear not. Such recollection helps us to stand firm in the faith, to abide in the love of Jesus Christ alone, to give all our fear to him in all that we face. The third area Deuteronomy 20 speaks of are the exemptions of the letter E in waging warfare. Yes, there were exemptions God placed upon Israel. These exemptions involved men that had just built a house and had not yet dedicated it. Or men that had just planted a vineyard and had not tasted the fruits of the vineyard yet. Or men that had just gotten married. Or also those that were fearful. Those that were faint-hearted despite the first two points. The idea behind entering warfare was that these men would cause fear and panic in their fellow soldiers because they had their minds and their hearts on different things, on their crops, on their wives, on their vineyard, or they were simply too afraid to fight. And God placed it here to exempt them. The fourth area we will call O for outsiders. This dealt with fighting cities and nations that were outside the promised land. These involved rules completely different from fighting within the land. Such gave the enemy plenty of chances to surrender. And if battle actually ensued, 
The only ones that were devoted for destruction were the soldiers, and the women and the children were commanded to be spared. The fifth area, what we will call W for the enemies within the promised land, is where we run into issues today. This is the same passage as found in, this is the same language that we found in our passage today. The Hebrews were commanded by God to move into the promised land and in such were called to clean the iniquity of the peoples residing therein completely before they settled down. The language and imagery of this passage and wherever such is found in the Old Testament takes on a sort of final judgment connotation, providing for us that God deals very seriously against unrepentant sin. If we have a hard time with the imagery and the accounts of the conquest of the promised land out of the, in the judgment of God, we should also cringe every time we profess in the creeds that Christ will come to judge the living and the dead. For this judgment we profess means all that finally reject Jesus Christ will suffer death eternally. These passages of judgment enacted a reality upon the Canaanites served to teach us that the final judgment indeed will be real, will be serious. The reason for the total removal of the unrepentant from the land is found in, the, in verse 18 of Deuteronomy 20. That they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods. And so you sin against the Lord your God. The, the insidious nature of sin is such that God calls for its complete and total removal. In terms of the warfare commanded by God in the confines of the promised land, the removal of these abominations meant all that remained unrepentant and dedicated to thwarting God by seeking to lead God's people astray, if they had a chance, were to be removed. For those that say this was a sort of ethnic cleansing of the time, it was actually not, as many and many examples of exemptions, exceptions can be found, which meant that the scope was largely and only for those that were unrepentant. Examples such as Rahab at Jericho or the Gibeonites, an entire city, come to mind of those that repented to serve God. As God's people, we can find examples throughout the Old Testament, such as Uriah the Hittite, that was what we call a sojourner, meaning someone that converted to serve God alone with God's people. The insidious nature of the abominations practiced by these nations, including the Amalekites that we read about this morning within the Promised Land, were things such as human sacrifices infant sacrifices, idolatry, sexual immorality of every sort, murder, violence, injustice against widows, orphans, and the destitute. God leveled his ban against the inhabitants of Canaan to replace with his faithful people, with his obedient people. Of course, Israel was not successful and lived with many of these peoples to their eventual downfall due to falling into their sins and refusing to repent. As we read throughout God's word, God does not tolerate evil. 
Yes, he is long-suffering. But eventually, if the sinning goes on long enough without repentance, without turning back to God, a reckoning comes, as it did for the land of Canaan. The descriptions of such give us in our own time an idea of what judgment in a final sense looks like. It's not pleasant, regardless of the period of history we come from. Ultimately, Jesus perfectly cleansed the promised land of sin in his ministry to save us from our sins. Jesus went throughout the promised land to expose sin and darkness by his light, by his love. Instead of conquering as Joshua and King Saul did, though, Jesus did through the sword of his word. When encountering demon-possessed men, women, and children, the way of Christ that finally cleansed the promised land was to cast these demons out and to lead these people to faith in him. When encountering diseases and disfigurements such as the crippled and the blind, Jesus healed them all. He even raised the dead. All the elements of the mark of sin upon humanity, especially in the promised land, were forever defeated by Jesus Christ, prefiguring what he will do for all of us on that final last day with glorified, resurrected bodies forever cleared of all presence of sin. Instead of physically destroying the unrepentant, Jesus took the sin of the entire world upon himself at the cross. He forever defeats all the abominations of the promised land in the entire world, freeing us by his love to love as he commands. Now the conquests we take part in today mean that we, as the army of God, we do not kill with the sword, but we present the message of the gospel by the sword of the spirit, by the actions of our love. Now the conquest we take part in as the army of God, the church, is that we, as the body of Christ, are actually killed for the sake of Christ, for the sake of the gospel. Martyrdom. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. A man, another manner of seeing the conquest of Canaan is, is to see that all the unpleasant commands to clean the land of iniquity as, of, as everything that it would eventually combine all together be placed solely upon our Savior Jesus Christ. All those sins we read about, everything, will be placed upon him. We all cringe at everything that is described during Holy Week and the Gospels that we read about the passion and the suffering and the death of our Lord. Sin is deadly serious. Our world does not think so, though, and therefore continues on with abominations that celebrate, if you will, a living death, a sort of zombie-like existence to pridefully revel in the filth of sin and death. God's way is the way of suffering for the sake of others, out of love, presenting Jesus Christ to everyone around us, Ultimately, the hard words to our sinful minds and hearts that we read today must be taken by faith. As a quote I recently came across states, when the Bible says, do not lean on your own understanding, the Bible is being serious. Your heart is deceitful. 
Your emotions fluctuate. Your understanding does not see the overall big picture. God never lies. God never changes. God knows all. Trust him. The command of God to Saul to cleanse the sins of Amalek through battle and a total destruction speaks to final judgment as carried out by God's instrument of the time, King Saul. Next week we'll cover what Saul actually did and what he did not do and the fallout. Let us with these words from God's word realize what a great salvation we have in Jesus Christ that has saved us from final judgment by his body, by his blood, taking his sin, all our sins upon him. Let us be grateful that he calls us to go forth as his church with the spiritual weapons he gives to confront sin. The choice is simple. To bow the knee in loving service to Jesus as Lord, Savior, and King, or to disobey and continue to worship self. Let us remain steadfast in the faith, relying upon our Savior as he works through us to reach those that need to hear the saving words of Jesus Christ and his cross and his resurrection and his ascension. We face the enemies of the cross on every side. Let us remain in prayer, clinging to Christ for everything, to preach his gospel to his glory with our words and with our lives. Amen.